Right now we're in Romans 10 and we want to read verses 11 through 13. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's bow our heads. <coughs> Father, as we begin our service by reading thy word, we want to deep down in thank you again for preserving thy word for us for so many millenniums, so many difficult centuries for the world, and yet thy word has always prevailed. Thank you. Thank you that we can read it, read it publicly, read it to ourselves. But what we're asking this morning is that thou will bless it to our hearts. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You've got to always remember or bear in mind that chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is dealing with Paul's lamenting the fact of salvation by grace being not understood by his beloved countrymen, by Israel. He starts all three of the chapters about Israel. Oh, I'd do anything for him. I'd even give my life for him. Now, they were ignorant of God's righteousness and were going about to establish their own righteousness. How do we know that? We'll look at the third verse here in chapter 10. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Briefly, now what are we talking about? Their own and, and God's righteousness. Well, you see... God demands a righteousness of everybody. And that righteousness is keeping the law perfectly. Now the only one that ever did that is the Lord Jesus Christ who has a perfect righteousness because he kept the law perfectly. It's not the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of the God-man. That's what's different. And so because he earned that righteousness and is able to give it to whomsoever he pleases. That's why they're ignorant of that type of righteousness. They still want to try to keep the law. And that's what Paul's lamenting about. They want to keep the law. The Jews had the Old Testament scriptures and they lived by them. And so you would think that any one of them reading the scriptures could see grace and faith revealed in the scriptures. But it's not that simple. This is God's word. This is spiritual. An understanding of God's word is given to those whom God sees fit to open it to. What am I talking about? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 3, 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. 
Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. One other little scripture to show you about the Lord opening and closing understandings. Look at Luke 24, verse 32. Luke 24, 32. This is two disciples that our Lord walked a long way with on a road, and he had closed the eyes of their understanding to even knowing who he was. But here's what they say after their eyes were opened. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? When the Lord opens the Scripture to your heart, to you, period, your heart burns. You, you rejoice. You're happy. It's great. And this is what they were saying. Didn't our heart burn within us? Now, so often, to show that what he is preaching is not contradictory to the Old Testament, Paul will quote from the Old Testament. And this is not to give force to his words, but to identify his words to their sacred scriptures. Then as well as now, it is the Jewish belief that God did not include Gentiles into God's family. Now Paul is aiming at that in verse 12, but he quotes Isaiah 49, 23. Well, let's see verse 12. Romans 10, 12. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. But the verse above it, it says, For the Scripture saith. What Scripture is that? Well, that's the Scripture we told you. is Isaiah 49, 23. So you can look at it yourself. Isaiah 49, 23. And it's the last part of that verse that he's quoting. The last part from that semicolon. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And Paul quotes it over here in verse 11 in Romans 10. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, sure it's worded a little different, and if you have Paul, and you have Paul saying that waiting on the Lord is the same as believing on him. Now, however you want to take it, the individual is not ashamed if he or she are real believers. Now, let me show you where folks were said to believe in Christ and yet were ashamed. See, there's a difference in believing and not being ashamed and believing and being ashamed. Look at John 12, 43. John 12, 43. Well, let's read 42 also. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, 
but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now those that believed and were afraid and ashamed were on doubtful ground until they confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. Now we know of one of those Pharisees who overcame his fear of the system and publicly acknowledged Christ. Look at John 19.39. John 19.39. You know who that guy was? Nicodemus. The one that came to him by night. The one whom the Lord said, Except you be born again, you shall know why I see the kingdom of God. Verse 39, John 19. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. He publicly was standing for the principles of our Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was dead. If anybody was to reject him or to stay secret, now would be the time because nothing could happen to you. He was dead. Now Nicodemus took his place. Now God does have a silent army so we really can't judge now what am i talking about well first kings 19 look at verse 18 first kings 19 and verse 18 here was a fellow a prophet of god and a great one at that hardly any can compare to him and yet, when you take each individual life of the prophets, you can't just compare them because they're all so, so different, and yet they were so faithful. And he thought he was the only one in Israel that worshipped the Lord. He just seemed to him like everybody else belonged to that other church. Look what the Lord says to him in verse 18. Yet, I have left me 7,000 in Israel... All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal and every mouth which hath not kissed him. I can hear uh, uh, Elijah now saying, uh, where are they? <laughs> but you see, that was none of his business. The Lord says, I have left me 7,000, okay? Uh, now what Paul and the prophet that he was quoting was saying was that mercy was extended to Gentiles if they believed. And the least degree of faith that embraces Christ unites the soul to him. There's no big faith and no little faith. Some have great faith, others have little faith. But it's faith that embraces Christ, big or little. Now, faith does not save us by being strong or weak. It is Jesus Christ by whom we're saved and not by our faith, which is only the instrument or the hand by which we receive him. We find the word whosoever used several times here in Romans 10, giving a full warrant for every one of the human race to believe in Jesus Christ, no matter who, if they believe in him, they shall be saved. Uh, 
there's whosoever in verse 11, and there's whosoever in verse 13. Now he says they shall not be ashamed. What would cause anyone to be ashamed of such a marvelous salvation given freely to sinners? We are such poor mortals living in a hostile world and living with such a treacherous heart and living with a body that cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why do I say a hostile world? You know, a lot of people think, oh, this world is great, everything is going rosy. I imagine Duke even thinks it's a pretty good world this morning, even though it's very hostile to him. But take a look at John 15 and verse 18. John 15, 18. You see, the world is going to be hostile if you are a believer. If you're not, hey, you can do anything you want with it. It's going to look good to you. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Hate. Not just bear along with it or roll with the punch with it. No, not that kind. Hate. If you're of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And then I told you that it has such a treacherous heart, well, you don't even have to turn to Jeremiah 17, 9, because you know that. Heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And then I told you that a body cannot enter the kingdom of God, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 50. 1 Corinthians 15.50 Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, and neither doth corruption inherit corruption. What's that mean? It means no matter how humble how devout, how nice, how anything you are in this body, it'll never go to heaven. Never. Even if you're a great believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a wonderful witness for him, the body that you're in now will not go to heaven. You got it? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Along with believing in Christ, along with being a great witness, along with the promises of the Bible, is a new body that has no blood in it, a resurrected body. That's the one that goes to heaven. No matter what you do to this one, it's got to go down and sin has to be buried with it. Okay? There's only a few going to be changed. When the Lord comes, there'll be a few changed it's still going to have a change. You're not going up in the body you got. You're going to have your new body. Do you realize that nothing you have goes with you to the next life? Nothing. Only you go to be united with a new body that is sinless. 
You see, if this old body could go, then sin would have to go too, and sin is not allowed. Rather, it's forbidden in heaven, and it's forbidden in the New Jerusalem. Look at Revelation 21, 27. Revelation 21, 27. Now this is speaking of the New Jerusalem. Not heaven, but the New Jerusalem. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's that beautiful book again, written from eternity. Those that whose names are written in that book will have their sins forgiven They'll have a new body and they won't sin anymore. Now, I know you can't imagine it. No, you can't imagine it. You can't imagine going through even 15 minutes in a day without some kind of a thought that's sin, something that's contrary to God's will. That's the way we live. That's the way we are. We desperately need our new bodies. Now this business of being ashamed shall be reversed at the day of judgment when all shall be ashamed but those who have believed in Christ for salvation. Every excuse, every so-called logical reason will bring shame and punishment when Christ comes to be glorified in those that believe in him. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, just before the Timothys. Our Lord is coming not just to vindicate himself, but to be glorified in you and me. This is going to be marvelous. This is going to be a, an experience which will last with us throughout eternity when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believed. That's something. That is. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now let's look at verse 12 in Romans 10. Romans 10, 12. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek for the same Lord over all is rich and to all that call upon him. Paul is saying, Come on, Jew, get down off your high horse. Not only is there mercy and salvation held out to the Gentiles, it is offered equally to Jew and Gentile. Sure, God is rich. He's able to supply the wants of all those that call upon him. Look at Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4.19. Scripture says he's got lots, lots in the storehouse. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, who is going to call upon God? And if they call upon him, what are they calling upon him for? We see verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. Now in order for salvation, 
It is necessary to call on the Lord, and that whosoever does so shall be saved. The name of the Lord signifies the Lord himself. By calling on the name of the Lord, all parts of religious worship are intended. It denotes a full and entire communion with God. Now, he or she who calls on the name of the Lord profoundly humbles themselves before God, recognizes his power, adores his majesty, believes his promises, confides in his goodness, hopes in his mercy, honors him as his God, and loves him as his Savior. That's who's going to call upon him. Now, to call on the Lord, or as his verse says, on the name of the Lord, is to place ourselves under his protection and to have recourse to him for his aid. Now, the natural man isn't going to call upon God for anything. Even the very religious natural man who has it all figured out in his mind will not call upon God except for things. Your very first calling upon God is for mercy. It's when you get to know him. And this is the result of God the Spirit doing the first work of quickening the heart. Ephesians 2.1, you hath he quickened. That'll always be in the scriptures. They'll never change that. You hath he quickened. What's it mean? It means spiritual life because they were dead in trespasses and sins. Who? Professional football players, Hollywood actresses, professors in the university, those running for political office, are all dead in trespasses and sins until God's Spirit quickens the heart and gives them an interest in their own soul and in eternity. That's what quickening means. Now, the whosoever here is the same whosoever found in Romans 22:17. Let's take a look. Revelation 22:17, last page in the Bible. Aren't you glad that the invitations go all the way to the end? This is for anybody. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. A thirst. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So that must mean that you've got to be thirsty. See, water's mentioned before and after the whosoever. Whosoever is a thirst, let him come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Now, who is thirsty? Who needs the water of life? They know and respond to the invitation that's given in Isaiah 55. One. Isn't this something? You see, the Bible isn't just isolated to one part and, and you never get any more information on it. Isaiah 55. One is the same invitation given by Isaiah the prophet over 750 years before Christ was born. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye and buy, and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, these folks that call upon God also know the meaning 
of Matthew 5, 6. What's Matthew 5, 6? Well, Matthew 5, 6 says something about hungering and thirsting. Let's take a look, see just how it says that. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's not for water. No, it's for righteousness. Not wine, not beer. No, righteousness. Where can righteousness be found that satisfies the thirsty soul? Well, I tell you what, it's only in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says that he's made unto us righteousness. And because he took on himself the punishment of our sins, we might be found the righteousness of God. It's substitutionary. But look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's where it says that he took our, the punishment of our sins, that we might be the righteousness of God. If you take these scriptures and the words just the way they are, they'll tell you exactly the same thing I'm preaching to you. For he hath made him to be sin for us, punished our sins in the body and in the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then to let you know that he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now Paul uses the word saved to remind us of our unhappy, condemned condition in which we were by nature. Well, where am I saying saved? Well, look at Romans 10 and verse 13, and it's the last word in the verse. It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that's part of human nature that human nature itself flees from, runs away from, doesn't like, can't stand, and rejects. And unless the Holy Spirit quickens the soul and shows it that it is in a condemned, lost condition, it will never agree with the Scripture description of the human heart. To be saved, first of all, you must be lost. There has got to be something threatening you, threatening to harm you, and for you to be delivered from. Look at John 3.18. John 3.18, so clear, so simple, and so ignored that it never sinks into the average reader. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What's this condemnation include? It includes burning in the lake of fire forever and ever. doesn't mean falling asleep when life is over and that's it. The condemnation is for eternal judgment upon the soul. That's how serious it is. That's why I say nobody believes what they read never sinks into the normal average person. 
condemned already. Well, what if I was born in a home with both mom and dad, born-again believers? Would I be condemned already? You sure would until you became a believer in Jesus Christ and he be your substitute, not the substitute for mom and dad. This is personal. Well, what if I was born in China? Well, we have another religion, an old one, and I never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would I be condemned already, though I never heard of Christ? Let me explain a little something here. God's Word has made it around the world. It is a Jewish book with Jewish authors, but it is about the true God of the universe. And what the Bible says applies to everyone on the face of the globe, regardless of what religion they belong to. This is God's Word, not a man's or a lesser God's writing. And God's Word says, all souls are mine. Ezekiel 18.4. Want to see it? It's there. Ezekiel 18.4. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Die and go to sleep? No, that's not what he's talking about. The Bible never teaches anything like that. Jehovah Witnesses do, but not the Bible, okay? Now, can you find any loopholes or exceptions in that statement? All souls are mine. Well, you can't find any exceptions in John 3.18 either when it says you're condemned already. Now, the whole world is divided here. Unbelievers condemned already. Believers taken from condemnation row and given eternal life. There's your two groups. Has it dawned in upon you that to be saved is the most wonderful thing that can happen to you you are no longer sitting on condemnation row. You were once, but now you are free because a ransom was paid for you. You know, that's Bible terms. Look at 1 Timothy 2.6. 1 Timothy 2.6. I'm going to say that a ransom has been paid. You know what a ransom is. That means somebody's been kidnapped. Somebody's been held captive and, and a price has to be paid to get them back. Let's read verse 5 also. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom. What kind of money did he have to pay with? He didn't have any money to pay with. He paid with his blood. Well, what made his blood so much better than anybody else's? Well, you see, it was sinless, spotless blood approved of by God the Father as the price demanded to pay for sin. That's what it was. 
Now, saved also means to come out from the world with its customs, fashion, its music, its religion, and it means you're a new creature. New creature. Something inside of you is totally different from the rest of the world's people. What is that? Well, turn to Second Corinthians 5.17. Let him explain it a little bit. Paul's very good at explaining things that I can't. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Your sins are totally forgiven. As far as God is concerned, they are passed away. As far as you are concerned, you're living in them. You're surrounded by them. You're crushed by them. But in God's eyes, they're passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are, in God's eyes, a perfectly righteous person. Isn't that wonderful? That's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't do a thing except receive it. You're a new creature. And it says, and you will come out from among them. Same page, just over on the other one. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Sons and daughters of God as you walk here on earth. Are you ashamed to even say that you're a son of God? Are you ashamed to say that you're redeemed? Because there's millions and millions against you being one redeemed, are you afraid to stand out and say, God has redeemed me by his blood? That's what being a Christian is is standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ and following his word. Well, the first thing that any awakened soul does is to flee from his or her religion. That's the thing that binds people to hell, religion. Preconceived teachings and ideas, not from God's word. Modern religion wants you to have fun. It'll bring in anything that will satisfy your desires. If it's a bowling alley, basketball court, pool table, ping pong tables, anything to satisfy your little old heart's desire, they'll bring it in. It'll give you a new Bible that won't offend you. It'll bring modern music with its instruments and vocalists to liven up the singing. And some of our best churches have gone to canned music so that the singer can sound professional. All of the modern music, the modern Bibles, the variety of choirs, the entertainment centers, the youth groups, the ball teams, the revival services fit in with the church described in Revelation 3.17. Take a look at this church. This is the modern day church, the last one in the list brings us right down to the end of time where we are now. 
this is your first Baptist church on every corner of the United States, wherever city they're in. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Need of nothing. Increase with goods, rich, got it all. You hear the expression, oh, that's a spirit-filled church. They are much into the spirit. May I tell you what a spirit-filled church is? It's a church filled with sinners who are weeping and mourning over their sins. And if they know Christ, they are silently praying for the lost that the Holy Spirit will take the preach word home to their hearts. Now that's a Holy Spirit-filled church. You see, most folks don't even know what the work of the Holy Spirit is. Turn to John 16, 8. We'll look at it a second. John 16, 8 will tell you what the Holy Spirit does in a church. He doesn't bring lively music. He doesn't bring a jazz organist or a, a professional vocalist. He reproves people of their sin to start with. John 16, 8. And when he has come, he'll reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now that's the work of the Holy Spirit in that order too. Now they think that all the activity in the busy church is, which is done in the name of Jesus is in the Spirit. I'm afraid for this modern church with all of its free will activity that when they think they have given all to Christ, he will say unto them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Look at Matthew 7.23. Matthew 7.23, and we may get to that tonight in our study. Let's start reading with verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, this is the majority of people in religion today. I don't care whose religion it is, where it is, what name it goes by, how great the founder was. If folks are not following the word of God, not living according to the word of God, not living according to God's spirit leading them in this life, and them being worshipers of the Lord Jesus, those who will call upon the name of the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord 
all through the day giving thanks, giving praise, asking for things they need. That's what being a caller upon the Lord is. And those that don't do that play in church. Just play in church. Increase with goods. Rich have need of nothing. Singing like crazy. Great instruments in the church. Doing all kinds of witnessing work. And the Lord says, they were works of iniquity. Now how could that be? How could casting out demons and preaching in the name of Christ and doing all nice things to people in the name of Christ, how could they be works of iniquity? Well, what makes them works of iniquity is it was their works. They never knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I never knew you. You never took time out to find me as a lost sinner. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to call the righteous, not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You never took the time. You stayed in your own self-centered pride of religion. You thought you could do it yourself, and you never got to know me. And that's what salvation is, is coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a sinner, and he's a savior. He's more than a savior. He's a substitute. He, he died for sinners. He died for everyone the Father gave him. Are you in that number? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life from back in eternity? You don't know? Find out. Come to him. He said, if you come to me, I'll in no wise cast you out. No wise. Nobody could make me cast you out. So that's a great promise to all of our people. Anybody needs to know Christ, come to him. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Turn it loose. Come out from the world. Come out from among them. Be a, be a sinner. If you're a sinner, the Lord will save you. If you're self-righteous in your own eyes, he'll never save you because you'll never call upon him. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon this simple gospel study this morning. Thank you for having it in the scriptures. Thank you for thy work in our own hearts so that we know who it is that calls upon God. We know who it is that gets saved. We know who it is that confesses Christ. We know what it is to be ashamed. And we know what it is not to be ashamed. Father, help this people. Have mercy upon all of these people, each family represented. Again, we beg you for traveling mercies. We ask you to touch hearts tomorrow at that funeral. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.